All I'm going to say to start is that I'm armed. I don't know if anyone would say dangerous, but... The Holy Spirit, this side of God, right? This side of God who's ever pervasive, utterly mysterious, and loves to work behind the scenes. Yet if you read the Bible, you're going to find him from the second verse of the Bible already to the seventh to the last verse and tucked everywhere in between. And one of the areas that he permeates is the Christmas story. Now, if I was to ask you about the major players in the Christmas story, you know, where's your mind going to go on this? Who would you mention? Who are the players in the Christmas story? Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. We got the big three, right? Maybe if you're feeling adventurous, you're going to kind of branch out from there into maybe shepherd country, angel country, even wise men or magi country. But what I want to talk to you today about is the bee cast. The secondary players in the Christmas story that the Christmas story does not see as secondary players at all. Because the Holy Spirit pervades the Christmas story and is working in all different kinds of people's lives, certainly Mary and Joseph and Jesus above all. But he's also orchestrating things and working behind the scenes in the lives of so many others who are connected to this family as well. And that's where I want to take you today. It's specifically into two B-cast players who you'll never see at a nativity scene. You're never going to see them on a Christmas card. It would be great if you did. Their names are Elizabeth and Zechariah. And if you've never heard of them, I mean, that alone is kind of like proof positive, isn't it? Like right now, how, how B-cast they tend to be for us. And yet, if you read the Christmas story, and I mean the actual biblical Christmas story, particularly as you could find it in in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 1 and 2. They're everywhere. So let me ground you in the story and in their part of the story today. And I'm just going to read to you from this Christmas story according to Luke. And I'm going to tell you off the bat, this is long. So stay with me. Keep focused. And if I see you drowse off, all right, we're, we're ready. Watch And let me jump in to where their part of the narrative begins. This is Luke 1, verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest. His name was Zechariah. And he belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Moses' brother Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and regulations blamelessly, but they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were well along in years. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as priest before God. He was chosen by Lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right hand of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and he was gripped with fear. But the angel said, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. 
Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready, ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man. My wife, well, she's old too. (laughs) And the angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day that this happens, because you did not believe my words which will come true at the proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he was staying so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he had kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When the time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. That's act one. Did you hear the name of Jesus? Mary, Joseph, shepherds, wise men. I just read to you, what, five minus that? I just read to you about 23 verses. And you didn't see him yet appear on the scene. Now, after this, the story goes on, where the same angel Gabriel comes and appears to Mary. She gets 10 verses. Let me then pick up the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah again, scene two. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb, it leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. We see Zechariah mentioned, but the story, Mary now included, but surrounding Elizabeth and Elizabeth's baby again. 
And from there, the story continues, and Mary goes on to bust some rhymes before God. It concludes, Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. Scene three, when it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah, but his mother spoke up and said, no, no, he's to be called John. They said to her, there's no one among your relatives with that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. And so he asked for a writing tablet. And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Always wise to do what your wife says. Would you agree? <laughs> Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and he began to speak, praising God. The neighbors were all filled with awe. And throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. And then for the next 10 to 15 verses, Zechariah goes about busting rhymes. I counted it up. If you were to look at the entire Christmas account in Luke, which is the longest of the two you'll find in the Bible, the story from the beginning of which I just read all the way through the birth of Jesus, the angelic appearances, the shepherds coming, and all that kind of good stuff we know so well. If you were to count all of it up, it comes to 120 verses. Yes, I counted. Yes, I get that bored. Yes, that's how I roll, all right? Of the 120 verses, 51, 51 of those verses revolve around Elizabeth and Zechariah. I mean, what is that, like 43% or something like that? Over 40% of the narrative of the Jesus birth does not focus specifically and explicitly on Jesus, Mary, and Joseph but around two people that most of the world considers a B-cast, a supporting role, not even prominent enough to make it into a nativity scene or a Christmas card. I, you know, I, I, I'm struck by this. Because so often I think when we imagine what God is doing in our life, what the Holy Spirit is doing in our life, we tend to think of ourselves as the center point, don't we? What is he going to do through me? What is he going to do in me as though I am the center of God's plan? But pervading the Christmas story, what you see 
is that sometimes, dare I say oftentimes, God sets you apart to lift up and support what he is doing in someone else. And through that supporting role, which is no less important, mind you, God works great things. Think about the effect of these two, two B-cast players on the Christmas story. If it wasn't for Elizabeth and Zechariah, there would be no John. John, the Bible says, was the greatest of the prophets. Do you think of him as the greatest? Like when you think like the great prophets of the Bible, is John the one that comes to your mind? It's the one that came to Jesus' mind. As the greatest, greater than Moses, greater than Elijah, greater than Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, greater than all those great prophets of old. Here this family was entrusted with raising up a son that was miraculously given to them. Where would John be if it was not for Zechariah and Elizabeth? Nurturing him, teaching him the way of the Lord, instilling in him the yearning and the hope that God had promised his people. Zechariah was a priest. I got to imagine in his younger years, he gloried in the idea maybe of God using him to do something great. And yet in his old age, when maybe those dreams had long been resigned, God chooses him in a different way to build in to someone else who would be called the greatest prophet there is. And where would Jesus be without John? Jesus himself attests to John as the one preparing the way for him. The prophetic witness itself testifies that the coming Messiah needed one to go before him to prepare people's hearts. How many hearts would Jesus' message have fallen on with deaf ears and hardness of soul? If John was not going, preparing the way, and there behind him is Zechariah and Elizabeth, lifting him up. I think about Mary, this young, scared girl, maybe 14 or 15 years old, pregnant, with a story that no one would believe, trying to come to terms with the unbelievableness of the reality of the situation she finds herself in, thrust into this position by God, so beyond her ability, so beyond her belief. Have you found yourself ever in isolation like that? Called to something, and while good, yet very alone? Oh, people might be all around you, but you bear it alone, you carry it alone. The doubt that often comes with that, the disillusionment, the worry, the fear, even just kind of the lack of will. But have you ever had that person step into your life? Whatever it was that you were bearing, that person step into your life, whether you stood on stage before masses of people, whether you had to stand alone and deliver something, whether you alone had to carry the responsibility in a group or whatever it might be, and that one person who comes along and believes in you. I love how it puts it. It says, 
that Mary hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea. And she finds refuge in the home of Zechariah and Elizabeth, a couple that will take her in, that will nurture her, protect her, give her a place of sanctuary and rest and the joy that they convey. That from the very moment it says that Elizabeth hears Mary's greeting, that her own baby leaps in the womb and she starts shouting out with joy, how am I so blessed that you come to grace me? Have you ever said that about a house guest? One that stayed for three months? The joy, the encouragement, the support, don't underestimate it, guys, that Elizabeth and Zechariah are pouring out on this young, scared girl. Those of you who have experienced this in your life, I don't need to tell you. When there is someone who is lifting you up, someone who is supporting you, someone who believes in you, someone who looks at you and goes, you nailed it, even when you didn't. You are doing great, even when others would say that you aren't. People climb mountains on words like that. Where would Mary be without Zechariah and Elizabeth? And think of the crowds. Everyone who's coming into contact in the story, if you were listening carefully, are struck by awe, are filled with joy, are overwhelmed with wonder, are affected by what God is doing in them, even though it's not about them. Because sometimes the greatest role God has for us to play is not for ourselves, but what he is going to do through us to lift up or support someone else. I want to put a phrase here on the screen. Go ahead, Kim, you can give it to me. And it's the question I want you to consider today. What role of encouragement, and welcome to my shorthand, does the Holy Spirit have for you in propelling what he's doing in others? Let me ask it again. What role of encouragement does the Holy Spirit have for you? How are you supposed to play Elizabeth? How are you called to play Zechariah? How do you fill those roles in propelling what God is looking to do in others? Because I guarantee you, Elizabeth and Zechariah, they saw that as a mighty call. They saw that as a holy and sacred task. They didn't view themselves as B-roll. Because with God, there is no such thing as a B-cast. That the role of encouragement, that the role of support, the role of helping others and propelling others to see what God is going to do in them is one of the highest and most holy tasks of all. There's a three-minute video I want to show you here in just a moment. To me, it like so captures the heart of this. Now, this was filmed about 15 years ago, so it's like shaky, probably on like a flip phone cam. And the resolution is a bit grainy, but it gives it an authentic feel, doesn't it? It's, it's all legit, so just kind of roll with that. And just soak in this video for a couple of minutes, and then we'll, we'll kind of digest it together. 
If you've learned a lot about leadership and making a movement, then let's watch a movement happen start to finish in under three minutes and dissect some lessons. First, of course, a leader needs the guts to stand alone and look ridiculous. But what he's doing is so simple, it's almost instructional. This is key. You must be easy to follow. Now here comes the first follower with a crucial role. He publicly shows everyone else how to follow. Notice how the leader embraces him as an equal. So it's not about the leader anymore. It's about them, plural. Notice how he's calling to his friends to join in. So it takes guts to be a first follower. You stand out and brave ridicule yourself. Being a first follower is an underappreciated form of leadership. The first follower transforms a lone nut into a leader. If the leader is the flint, the first follower is the spark that really makes the fire. Now here's the second follower. This is a turning point. It's proof the first has done well. Now it's not a lone nut and it's not two nuts. Three is a crowd and a crowd is news. A movement must be public. Make sure outsiders see more than just the leader. Everyone needs to see the followers because new followers emulate followers, not the leader. Now here come two more people, then three more immediately. Now we've got momentum. This is the tipping point and now we have a movement. As more people jump in, it's no longer risky. If they were on the fence before, there's no reason not to join in now. They won't stand out, they won't be ridiculed, and they will be part of the in-crowd if they hurry. And over the next minute, you'll see the rest who prefer to stay part of the crowd, because eventually they'd be ridiculed for not joining. And ladies and gentlemen, that is how a movement is made. So let's recap what we've learned. If you are a version of the shirtless dancing guy, all alone, remember the importance of nurturing your first few followers as equals, making everything clearly about the movement, not you. Be public, be easy to follow. But the biggest lesson here, did you catch it? Leadership is over glorified. Yes, it started with the shirtless guy, and he'll get all the credit, but you saw what really happened. It was the first follower that transformed a lone nut into a leader. There's no movement without the first follower. See, we're told that we all need to be leaders, but that would be really ineffective. The best way to make a movement, if you really care, is to courageously follow and show others how to follow. When you find a lone nut doing something great, have the guts to be the first person to stand up and join in. Isn't that fantastic? I think my favorite part of that video too is the woo girl in the background. Like, did you hear her like three or four times? Woo! Like going throughout the whole thing. Here's the question again. What role of encouragement does the Holy Spirit have for you in propelling what he's doing in others? What shirtless dancing guy is the Holy Spirit working in you to lift up and support? Because I tell you this, the Spirit is on the move. God is on the move. And he is working in people. And so easily we can adopt a position of jealousy that says, why isn't he working the same way in me? But make no mistake, he might not be working the same way in you, but he is working in you. 
arguably just as much and just as importantly. Because sometimes, and dare I say oftentimes, the work of the Spirit in our life is not what God is going to do in me, but what God is going to do through me to bring forth the work of goodness and grace in this world that he is trying to achieve. You know, here at FOF, we have this, this statement that kind of defines who we are as a church, where we say, make disciples who make disciples. And most people I find want to stop at make disciples as though, you know, I arrive and now it's about me and it stops with me. But that's not the way of Jesus because the way of Jesus is what I'm going to do in you, then I want you to go and do in others, do in other people, to share the joy and the goodness and the insight and the wisdom and the story of what I'm up to. I want to share with you the narrative and I'm going to read this to you word for word so as not to risk paraphrasing any of it. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus invites people from all walks of life to follow him. These people are called disciples. A disciple is not someone content to simply know what Jesus taught. A disciple is someone who wants to be who Jesus is. A disciple is someone radically pursuing a deeper relationship with Jesus. Being a disciple is not an advanced spiritual condition. It often means being very green. It's someone undergoing a process of spiritual formation. It can be messy. It can be hard. It can be confusing. Which is why we think church should be about people helping each other on that journey. Now, key in here. We believe Jesus invites us into this, but not for our benefit alone. We believe each of us is called to pour into another as we were poured into by someone else, thus creating an endless stream of disciples, making disciples, making disciples until Christ comes again. The greatest work that God does in your life might be what he does through you for someone else. And Zechariah and Elizabeth didn't see that as a consolation prize. No, 2,000 years we continued to read about them and hear the story of how these two people responded to what God was doing for a greater purpose than themselves. And guys, it filled them. It filled them with the Spirit. And it filled them with unspeakable joy. Read it, read it for yourself sometime later on your own. Every time they respond in this way, they can't but help, well, Boston rhymes. They just start singing. They just start composing on the spot. It just starts coming out of them. This unspeakable hope and joy and purpose and meaning that they find in God because of what God is choosing to do through them. How about you? Let God, let God work through the power of his spirit that same joy and peace and purpose and meaning and jubilation 
that that couple shared back then because that's how the Holy Spirit rolls. And that's how he moves.